are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, a community striving to follow Jesus and make disciples. Join us for one of our three worship gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 and 11.15 a.m. at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Dear God, you truly are the great I am. And you are worthy of all of our praise. And Father, we, uh, we struggle to grasp how great you are. And we struggle to grasp how great your son, Jesus Christ, is. And how powerful your spirit is. Help us during times of worship like this that we can just allow our minds to to try to grasp and to try to, to understand and comprehend just how incredible you are. And I pray, Father, as we open up your word and as we as we look at the identity of Jesus as he self-revealed himself to us, I pray that we will gain a clear insight today in just how incredible Savior we have in Jesus. Help us be drawn to him in a fresh new way today. And help us examine our hearts to see if we really are embracing him as the one that came from you to show us the way. We love you and we thank you for this time and we give it to you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we, uh, as we reflect on this song we just sang and thought about it, those words in so many ways are an appropriate review of our message last week as we began our examination of the true identity of Jesus Christ. As you can see from the graphic on the screen and also on the stage, we are longing as a group of Jesus followers to have Jesus' fingerprint all over our lives and all over what we're seeking to do as a church collectively because we truly are a people serious about following him, following Jesus and making disciples. Now, although our message series title might be obvious and straightforward, uh, our title for this weekend, A Carbs-Only Diet, might not be so obvious. In fact, I had some people last week say, where are you going with that? And even I got home last Sunday from church, uh, my wife said, what are you going to talk about next week? I mean, you know, so, so maybe some of the rest of you have uh, been curious about that as well. Well, um, let's dig into that, that title a little bit, A Carbs-Only Diet. I was inspired by that title to research a little bit about diets. And so I came across a website that listed uh, the 38 most popular diets in the United States. It was uh, from a U.S. News World Report. 
And it was interesting to see these popular diets, many of them that you've heard their names, ranked in the order of their long-term effectiveness. Not necessarily their short-term results, but their long-term effectiveness. And uh, in all honesty, as I searched that list, a carbs-only diet was nowhere to be found. But neither was a sweets-only, a sugar-only, or an ice cream-only, which is the diet that I'd like to have. But it was informative to learn that the top three diets on that list in terms of long-term effectiveness were called the DASH diet, the MIND diet, and the TLC diet, closely followed by the Mediterranean diet. Now, immediately I was drawn to the MIND diet because I thought, okay, if there's a diet you can just do in your mind and you don't have to worry about what you eat, I'm all over it, Okay. But I found out that MIND repre- uh, represents, it's an acronym for Mediterranean Dash Intervention Neurodegenerative Delay. Okay, I practiced that. Okay, I got it out. Okay, and that's a mouthful. So I lost interest in the MIND diet, okay? Uh, but I found that all of these diets that are toward the top of the list are heavy on fruits and vegetables. That's interesting. And then I looked at the three least effective diets. Uh, actually, the four least effective diets, and I found the raw diet, which just didn't sound good at all. And then Dukin. Now, first I thought it was uh, Dunkin' Donuts, but it was Dukin. Okay, so then I lost interest in that one too. But then paleo and whole diets, which all emphasize, these are the four least effective diets, and they all emphasize limiting carbs. So I was glad to find out that I don't have to boycott my favorite place to study the Bible and to meet with people, and that's Panera Bread, okay? Uh, Because it seems that minimizing carbs isn't necessarily the answer either. So with that said, I found myself at Panera studying for this message, and I was inspired by something that was on their wall that's kind of the slogan of Panera Bread, uh, and I'm not getting any uh, feedback financially from them for this commercial, but they have this on their wall. It says, it starts... Start with bread. Well, that seems like a good place for us to start in our ongoing examination of the I am statements of Jesus recorded in the Bible, which he gave to us. He gives seven I am statements in the Gospel of John to reveal his identity to us so that we can understand and grasp and comprehend who he is. And then from that, how we have then a new identity in him. Well, the first I am statement that we're going to look at today is when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's where we get the carbs only diet. You can find this description by Jesus in your Bible in John chapter six. Or if you have a a smartphone, you want to look up the Bible app, Look up John 6 or in the message notes and let's follow on. Now, as we pick up the Bible reading for this weekend, it actually follows a Bible story that we read last weekend when Jesus walked on water in the midst of a storm. And if that wasn't impressive enough, Jesus walking on water took place the night after he had fed 5,000 men in one setting with just a couple of loaves and a few fish. Now, 
uh, or a couple of fish and filos. I might have got that backwards. But uh, what's interesting is that in the text, it says 5,000 men, and specifically it was males, the word that was used. So some have questioned, was it just 5,000 men out there uh, you know, in the wilderness, or did they also bring their wives and children? If that was the case, it could have been up to 20,000 people that Jesus fed. So news is quickly spreading throughout the Jewish people living in Galilee that Jesus is demonstrating the same power as the great I am who revealed himself to Moses who had parted the waters and provided daily manna for the Israelites. And if you think about it, in many ways, that's what Jesus had just done, right? He walked on water and since the waters were parted for him and then he fed people with manna or bread. So more and more people are wanting to see Jesus, and yet the thousands who he had fed uh, wake up the next morning and realize that although Jesus had not left on the only boat that departed from their town, he's nowhere to be found, and so they realize he's no longer on that side of the Sea of Galilee. So let's pick up the, the reading in verse 24. It says, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. I love that phrase, in search of Jesus. And it seems like a good starting place for us. My hunch is that everyone here today, unless you just simply came because someone woke you up and dragged you here, is that everyone here is searching for Jesus at one degree or another. And the question is, what led you to search for Jesus? You see, oftentimes I think an individual search for Jesus begins actually far from being noble sometimes. I know for myself, my search for Jesus began many years ago when I had an older sister who just kept bugging me to go to a particular church. And so finally, I just decided to go check it out just to get her off my back. And little did I know that that was going to lead me down a path of discovering what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But my initial going and attending church and learning about Jesus was far from noble. For others, their search for Jesus might have started with a desire to simply find a, a nice group of people to have as friends. For others, it might have been because they're going through a troubled time in their marriage or they're facing conflict or difficulty in their family and they're looking for some direction, looking for some help. Others, it might be because they're having a personal uh, a problem with a particular habit or hang-up or, or some kind of thing that's just hanging them up in life that they need some help. Although I, I think there's many reasons why we might be first drawn to Jesus to maybe scratch a particular itch in our life, it's important for us to go beyond the desire to simply taste satisfaction in our life if we really want to get to know the real Jesus. So if you're taking notes, the first observation is, is it simply just to taste satisfaction? As we keep reading in the Bible text, we learn that that was the case for this crowd that was in search of Jesus. Let's pick up the reading in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus calls this crowd out for simply wanting the temporary satisfaction of filling their bellies with the food that he could provide them. Jesus says, make sure that you don't simply work for food that spoils, but instead search for something of more significance. More than 50 years ago, one of the most popular songs in our country was the classic rock and roll song, by the Rolling Stones entitled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And although it wasn't correct grammar, it, it really resonated with people in our culture. And I think that even 50 years later, that, those words still resonate with people. It resonated back in the 60s uh, uh, of a time where people found that they could find no satisfaction in material stuff or the temporary high from alcohol or drugs or even the promised pleasures of loosening morals, sexual morals in our culture. I truly believe as we fast forward to today that those lyrics would still resonate with many people's hearts today, that they just can't find satisfaction Many in our community, this region of Southwest Ohio, I fear, look to the accumulation of possession and wealth and for a pursuit of satisfaction. In a recent survey by the popular magazine, The Atlantic, they asked 120 people who have a net worth of $25 million or more. Think about that. So the only people they're surveying are people that have $25 million or more a series of questions to determine their level of satisfaction. Here's the concluding quote that I came across. The respondents turned out to be a generally dissatisfied lot whose money had contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family. Indeed, they are frequently dissatisfied even with their sizable fortunes. Most of them still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they said they would need to recover to, would require an average 25% more wealth than they currently possess. It sounds like to me that if we look to possessions or wealth, that we simply are going to find ourselves, as the Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, many of us recognize that the satisfaction will not be found in simply seeking pleasure or possessions. But for some of us, maybe we still think that if I can just find that right job that gives me a sense of meaning, that then I can find satisfaction. A minister friend of mine, Joe Tipton in Kentucky, shared with me a fascinating study reported in 2013. Forbes magazine printed an article in which they broke down a massive research project conducted by the Gallup organization. In this project, uh, they surveyed 230,000 workers. That's a large sampling from 142 different countries around the world. And to the surprise of no one, they concluded that very few people actually enjoy their work. Here's a quote from the article. Overall, Gallup found that only 13% of workers feel engaged by their jobs. 
It goes on, the vast majority, or 63%, are not engaged. They sleepwalk through their days, pulling little energy into their work. The article concludes with these words, work is more often a source of frustration than one of fulfillment for nearly 90% of the world's workers. You see, once again, we hear that phrase, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, some of us maybe have got to that point in life where we recognize that pleasures, possessions, even prominence at work won't bring fulfillment. And yet, we can still find ourselves thinking or maybe settling for the thought that fulfillment will be found in getting involved in a church. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute. Where's he going with this? Doesn't he want people to get involved in church? Well, yes, I want you to be involved in church. And yet, I want to make sure that I make this really clear this week. I long for something more for you than simply to taste satisfaction in the life of the church. You see, if we're simply going through the motions of of seeking Jesus by attending church and thinking that our church involvement or maybe just finding that right entertaining service will bring satisfaction, we're going to find ourselves disappointed. Maybe some of us think, well, I need to go to church to find friends or to find a mate or possibly for some to find help for a marriage or a family that's in trouble or to find a self-improvement plan for my life then either we get temporary satisfaction and then we get bored with the church or we don't quite get our itch scratched and we simply quit going through the motions. You see, in some ways, I think that's why it's so easy to fall into the trap of church hopping, always looking for that right church that will meet our satisfaction. And yet, a better question is, Am I simply seeking personal satisfaction as the people in this reading where we're looking for what Jesus can provide us or are we searching for something of more significance? For years when I would greet people and talk with people in the lobby after one of our worship gatherings, I would typically ask a common question. I would say, did you enjoy the service today? You know, I've been thinking about that question, and it just seems so shallow. And so I've quit asking that question. Because the truth of it is, I'm aware that people could find something else to do on Sunday morning that they might find more enjoyable. Maybe it's something on the Internet, or maybe it's, it's watching a program on TV or maybe even finding another church that has a, a better, bigger, brighter show that maybe is more entertaining. But you see, in my heart of hearts, I long for something deeper than that. And so what I've started asking the question when I, when I greet people as, as they... Uh, Leave. I, I'm trying to stay, keep a straight mind, but for some reason we're parading preschoolers back through a back wall, and I don't know why we're doing that, but that's okay. And now I've distracted all of you, but uh, 
It's just really hard to keep a straight face and keep going when you got this parade of kids. I don't know if they thought I'd, maybe when I'm making a point about being entertained, they decide to entertain me. I don't know. I'm sorry, I have ADD. Okay, so when I see stuff like that, it just, I go off. But, uh, but here's the question that now I'm asking people as they leave on Sunday mornings or Saturday night. Did you find it meaningful? Did you find the worship gathering meaning? Because you see, I think it's even a, 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 a senseless pursuit. To, I think that we can have the biggest, brightest show in town. But I think what we as a church here at Southwest are going after is meaning. You see, my heart's desire is that we can help people here at this church to grow in their faith, and they grow in their understanding of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. You see, that's what Jesus was after. And after Jesus challenged them for simply seeking satisfaction from what his ministry provided for, the Bible tells us in verse 28, then they ask him, what must we do? They, they can tell Jesus isn't happy with their search. What must we do to the, do the work God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus is saying, here's what I want you to focus on. This is what I want you to really work at, is to believe that the one, to believe in the one that God sent, which of course was him. Throughout this text, Jesus is emphasizing to them, instead of focusing on how Jesus could improve their life or what he could provide them, and in this context, it, it was bread, Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point. He says, I'm the manna. I'm the bread from heaven that the Lord has sent. Instead of looking for temporary satisfaction from the loaves of bread, look for lasting fulfillment from the one who came from heaven as the bread of life, Jesus. I find it interesting that, that Jesus uses the phrase, the work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent. It seems to me that embedded in this statement is a challenge for them and for us to put forth great effort in our own personal faith development. Now, I know that sometimes we push back from this idea of work when it comes to faith. And yet, let me remind you that Jesus is the one that used the word work here. You see, we're called to work at our faith development. We're called to make every effort in our relationship with him. And as we consider this tension between the grace of God and the human effort, I, I recently came across a thought-provoking quote that I, I really think is helpful in this area. It's a quote by Dallas Willard, who's written a lot about spiritual development. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. So here's my question. What effort have you been making lately to grow deeper in your own individual personal relationship with Jesus? And are you really working at that relationship? 
Now, once Jesus throws down this challenge to make himself the focus of their hearts and their searching, they all get stressed about whether or not they have the confidence that Jesus is truly the manna from heaven, that they can find real meaning and fulfillment. And let's see how Jesus answers them to relieve stress, which is our second point here, to relieve stress in their hearts and possibly in our hearts as we hear Jesus call to a deeper faith and a deeper commitment. Let's pick up the reading of verse 30. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread, God is the one, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. By the way, I I can't help but see some humor and some irony in this text. I mean, what else was Jesus going to have to do to prove to these folks that he was the Messiah, that he was the bread of heaven, that he was the son of God, that he was God in the flesh? I mean, he he had walked on water. He had fed five, maybe 20,000 people, you know, in a miraculous way. And, and yet, as we try to apply this to our hearts and our lives, how much does he have to do for us to make him the very center focus of our lives? I mean, he died on a cross for us, and he came back from the dead. Is that enough? You see, once again, Jesus is identifying himself with the Father, And he invites us to make him the Lord, the master of our life, the controller of our minds and thoughts, the God of our life. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, quotes William Temple when he wrote, your true religion is what you do with your solitude. Think about that. Your true religion is what you do with your solitude. Or as a friend of mine put it, the true God of our hearts is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. So let me ask you, what occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? If there's a certain thing that continually occupies your mind, maybe that's the God of your life. Another way to ask that question is, what is is it that you turn to when you're stressed by life? Is it your relationship with Jesus? Is it deepening your awareness of his working in your life through reading scripture and through spending time with him in prayer? Or instead, in times of stress, do you find yourself turning to some other counterfeit God in your life to help you cope with those stressors of life? For some, it might literally be food. And we keep finding ourselves turning to food to seek comfort, which is possibly the core of the battle for so many when it comes to food and diets. See, at that point, food is no longer just a means to seek energy and and replenishment, but we've turned to it as as a counterfeit God 
in times of stress. Possibly for others, it's a a bottle or a cigarette or a pill or a pornographic image that we turn to to find relief or comfort in times of stress. You see, I'm convinced that what's at the heart of addictions in our life is these counterfeit gods. We've replaced the true bread from heaven with some empty, addictive substance that will never lead to lasting satisfaction or the lasting answers for our stress. Instead, we need to turn and answer the invitation from Jesus to find real sustenance in him. Let's keep reading in verse 35. Jesus replied, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I shall not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is the Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up. At the last day. What an incredibly great promise. Jesus is the bread of life. Yes, life starts with bread, but not the kind of bread you find at Panera. The bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, the one who came from heaven to give lasting meaning, lasting joy lasting peace and lasting life, eternal life. Now, it's important for us to note that Jesus later in the gospel of John defines eternal life not simply as the duration of life, but the quality of life as well so that we can experience the relationship with Christ in the here and now that brings us sustenance and meaning and fulfillment. Now, although this example of bread speaks to us and to every generation, it would have spoken volumes to the people of Jesus' day because they understood that bread was the very staple for their life. It was truly the substance that sustained them. And they understood that there was no substitute for the essentiality of bread in their lives. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, you need to understand that a personal relationship with him, a personal relationship with Jesus is the essential staple of life. That's a strong message. Do you hear that message today? It's a strong call for a total commitment to Jesus, him becoming the very center of our lives. Now, you can only imagine when this message begins to resonate in their hearts and they begin to understand that that's what Jesus is calling for, that, that as one author pointed out, the, the push for Jesus for King campaign begins to evaporate. And let's listen to their grumbling, picking up in verse 52. It says, then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us flesh to eat, his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, Jesus doesn't back off. I love that about Jesus. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have 
eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. Now, some have suggested that the crowd is pushing back here, thinking that Jesus is calling to them to some form of cannibalism or vampire activity of drinking blood. But I actually think they're feeling uncomfortable because they get a sense that he's calling them out of simply being religious and going through the motions. Instead, he's calling them and he's calling us into the deeper waters of discipleship. To live a life that's actually consumed with Jesus at the center point of our lives. Now, actually, we understand this language even in our culture. We'll hear people say, you know, that woman loves music. In fact, we'll say, She eats and drinks music, right? You've heard that phrase. Or this guy, he loves baseball. I mean, he eats and drinks Cincinnati Reds. Well, we know he's going to go hungry this year, okay? But I'm sorry. But we understand that when somebody says eat or drink, that means that they are totally consumed, that that's the focal point of their life. Now, here's my question for you. What is it you eat and drink? Jesus says, if you want eternal life, if you want a life that truly lasts, if you want a quality life that sustains you, that will be perpetually nourishing in your life, he says, you need to eat and drink me. Now, that's a strong message. It's a powerful statement of identity that Jesus is to be the staple of our life. Now, sometimes we try to spiritualize this self-identifying description of Jesus and say, well, he's simply introducing communion here. But the truth is, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. You see, he's not saying that if we eat a piece of bread and drink a cup of juice or wine that we're taking salvation pills. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we need to be consumed with him. As I said, I'm, I'm not convinced that this teaching of Jesus was, was originally about communion at all. But I do think that communion is about this passage. You see, when we take communion each week, we're to be brought back to the very staple of our life. We're to be brought back to the very center, the core of our existence. And that's Jesus, the bread of life. And as we take the bread and as we take the cup, the Bible says that when we take communion, we're to examine ourselves. And it's a good time for us to ask ourselves, what is it that really I'm eating and drinking in life? What am I really looking to to find sustenance and meaning for life? Am I just wanting a little taste of Jesus on the weekend? Do do I just want a little stress or uncertainty relieved? If that's the case, maybe have I been turning to some counterfeit gods during the week? Or is Jesus 
the true God of my life? Is Jesus the true God of your life? So as we pass the trays today, and as we take the bread and the juice into our body, let's ask ourselves, what are we totally consumed with Monday through Friday? Is it Jesus? Is he truly the center of our life? Are we truly eating and drinking of Jesus? It's a call to commitment. Have you answered that call? Let's examine our hearts as we have a time of communion now. Let's pray together.